Today we have DeMarco Ansari. He's a person that I do trust that happens to be right in the middle of gentrification. He has worked in the field of development for this city and now with a private company. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarco Ansari. Thank you for having me. I am so happy to, you know, have you. Welcome to Detroit, Joe. I got a whole lot of questions, and I know that you will be honest. That's why I've asked you here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your education, and your professional background? Because I want people to know that you are truly a professional. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised on the west side, a little bit north of Boston Edison. Um, but for those who don't know, I actually grew up a little bit on the border of um, Highland Park in Detroit. So grew up there. Went to private schools. Uh, I went to Cornerstone Private School. When I graduated from there, I went to UD Jesuit. I graduated from Loyola High School. Went to UD Mercy for my bachelor's in international business and economics. And I went back for my master's in economics. I started working in economic development for a small firm in Midtown, uh, working on projects there. And then I ended up going into mortgages and then eventually uh, worked in health insurance for a minute. And then I got a job at the city of Detroit in their housing and revitalization department with their public-private partnership team. And then now um, I recently left there and now I work for a private developer. Boy, to be so young, you have done a lot of things. (laughs) Okay, all around us, we are seeing new developments in this city. Is this something that we should fear or should we embrace it? I don't think that you should fear development. Development is a natural part of community development, um, community economics. It's just a function of living in a city. So no, you should not fear development by any means. I think that people are worried about development. I think that some of the reasons why people are worried about development, I think, are valid. But when you go into the conversation about development, different types of development, because there's always different types of developments. Um, but when you go into it afraid, it puts you in a in a weird place where you're kind of like a victim and things are happening to you. But if you come into it not afraid and willing to have a conversation, I think that you'll find that developers typically will be open to having a conversation with you. I have a friend whenever I tell her, oh, we just had a brand new shop that opened up here in the neighborhood. And she laughs and she says, It's not for you. Mm -hmm. So the question is, are all these developments, are they for the new people that are coming in or is it for us? Developments are for everybody. Businesses are for everybody. There is no, this particular business is for that person. So if a new shop or something comes in the neighborhood, that business owner thought that they could make money in that neighborhood. So the question is not, is that business for everybody? Because it is. And you also think if they were to tell you not to come in, you'd have a lawsuit. So all businesses are for everybody. I think the conversation is about price point. You know, so like uh, Starbucks comes in into a poor neighborhood. Is it for everybody? Yes, it is. And probably people from that neighborhood work at the Starbucks. However, the flip side is the price might be at a point where it's not something that the average neighborhood person can afford to frequent at a very frequent rate. 
Yeah, because I've heard um, people say that if a Starbucks or Whole Foods moves in, that's gentrification. It, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I was, that's a funky one because it's it's not necessarily gentrification, but it definitely gives the sense that this area is now going to attract the kind of people who can afford a Whole Foods or a Starbucks. So whereas you may have used to gone to the, you know, Joanne's coffee shop and they served you just a regular cup of hot, you know, black coffee and it was a dollar. Starbucks is going to sell you a latte at six or seven dollars. So the conversation is, can I afford this six or seven dollar latte every day when I could just go to the Coney Island and grab, you know, just a cheap cup of coffee? That's a dollar. So in the same with Whole Foods, when Whole Foods come, that's for the average or even a lower income person. Whole Foods is not going to be a place where you're going to do your wholesale grocery shopping. You might pick up an item or two and then you go to Aldi's or wherever else you go. But yeah, sometimes, I mean, and I think it's pretty realistic to say that when you see a Whole Foods or some of these big name brand companies with very expensive products, um, they do seem to trigger a gentrification. And I think that when um, people saw that coming here, they said, oh, yeah, we are we are definitely here. Mm. Um, every month, a lot of us, first of all, a lot of us do have that feeling of being pushed out. Mm-hmm. And every month that we get letters, uh, emails, phone calls from these realtors or developers asking us what we like to sell. Mm. Now, when they call me, I know that they're stupid and I just hang up on them. Mm. But sometimes they'll say, well, I will give you X amount of dollars for your home. Well, I don't know a lot about real estate, but I know how much that my home is worth, and they are low. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people in my neighborhood, they are not real estate savvy. Mm -hmm. So when someone calls them and says, here's $150,000 for your house, they think that's a lot of money. And maybe... There's three generations of them there. Mm-hmm. So if they divide up that 150, that's not too much left. So where are they going to go? They got to leave the city. Mm-hmm. And so that's why a lot of people feel like they're being pushed up because they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's another conversation that I used to have a lot when I was at the city. And I still had those conversations now. The reality is that it's about who we're talking about. If you're talking about a homeowner, a homeowner can't be pushed out because they own the property. So nobody can come and take the property from you and then give it to somebody else. So that person is not going to be pushed out. There's no pushing that person out. Now, to the question about, you know, somebody's calling and asking, hey, I'm going to give you 150000 for your house. It really just depends on that person. So when I talk to people, I say, don't sell. Just don't sell it. You know, just hang up or don't answer or whatever, you know, just don't sell it. But it depends on the neighborhood. It depends on what they're asking. It depends on your current situation. It depends on, you know, if you imagine that the market is going to go up or go down. So those are conversations. And you, you said that, you know, not everybody is a real estate professional and that's true. But you you said it like, look at Zillow. Zillow has it where you can download Zillow. You can plug in an address and you can look at the Z estimate. So even if you're not like, you know, real estate savvy, you can look and say, well, Zillow says my house is worth 300000 So I probably shouldn't sell it. It really just depends. But I I have always taken a stance of don't sell your house. Don't sell it. 
just don't sell it. I mean, if somebody's offering you a hundred thousand or a hundred fifty thousand, then you can assume that they're going to be able to take it and put some money into it and make three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand. It's just the nature of business. I'm not going to offer you market rate for something that I didn't have to turn around and put more money into because I'm not going to get my money out the deal. So it's business. Um, it might be uncomfortable, but it is business. And in business, there's contracts and agreements and you don't have to sell. Well, how do you deal with developers and still get what you want? Mm -hmm. Such as the situation that I have now, I have developers that are going to develop right next door to me. Mm -hmm. Exactly a fence. Mm -hmm. There's going to be rats and mice running. Mm -hmm. There's going to be an awful lot of noise. Mm -hmm. So how do I deal with them or do I not have a leg to stand on once they have bought that land? Yeah. So when they buy the land, it's their land. So they can do whatever they want to do within the zoning ordinance and the rules that are established by the city's zoning and planning ordinances. So that's the reality there. But it's not to say that you don't have a leg to stand on. You can reach out to the developer and you can bring up your concerns to that developer. And I would like to say that most developers will listen, um, not to say that they'll do anything, but just to say that they'll at least listen to you and have that conversation. But to move into the next place, right, which is that, well, I talked to them and, and they told me a good game and then they didn't do none of that. So what you do at that point is you call BC, uh, the Building and Safety Engineering Department. So you can call them. You can bring your concern to them. Maybe they can do something. Maybe they won't. Maybe they send an inspector out to make sure everything is going according to code and rules and regulations. Um, if you're still having problems with a developer, you can you should feel comfortable to reach out to, you know, somebody at the housing revitalization department. Maybe they know who the developer is and they can reach out and have contact. You can reach out to your district manager um, or the deputy district manager. And it's, it's their job to listen to you and to take your concerns and your complaints and then to take them back to the city and direct them to the locations where those situations can be dealt with. And you can always go to your city council um, person and bring those concerns to them. And in that chain of public, you know, servants, you should be able to address whatever issues you're having with the developer. Again, it's private land and it's a private deal. And, you know, the, the other thing to remember is if that project is being subsidized, then you have even more say because those are public dollars going into that project. So they're going to be even more under the, the spotlight from the government. So you can totally address it that way. But to the question, the original question, no, like you could go and have a conversation, but the developer doesn't owe you anything. So that would just be a conversation and them being, I don't want to say being nice, but being a good neighbor to, you know, accommodate some of your concerns. You know, I ask myself, why do people move into the city? Okay. Now, I, I know that businesses move in. They make a lot of money because black dollars are always there. Mm -hmm. They move to, they already are in the suburbs. So they take the money that they've made from us and they build up their own area. That we know from looking at history. Mm -hmm. But then I see these other young people moving into the neighborhood. And I wonder, now why are you really here? Because you never stay. It's like one group comes and then they move out the way, then there's another group. And sometimes you have these two new groups. If 
fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that history tells us that they leave and they'll say, school system sucks. Mm-hmm. Well, you knew that before that you moved mm-hmm. in. Or they'll say, crime is horrible. And you knew that. Yep. So my question is, why are they here? Are we their urban experience mm-hmm. or are we some, um, what can I say, some experiment? I wouldn't say that we're an experiment because I, I don't think that we're an experiment. I think that we're an experience for um, those people who are coming for that purpose. And I think we're, we're really tapping into gentrification, which is really the conversation that we're having. And so gentrification, you know, it looks like a race issue, but it's really a money issue. So like if me and you move to Farmington Hills, me and you are not going to gentrify Farmington Hills. It's already rich. There's nothing that me and you are going to demand that won't make sense that they can't handle. But the reverse happens when you move from the rich neighborhood or city, whatever you want to call it. You move from the rich area and then come to the poor area. The poor area doesn't have all of those things. So when you move into it, so if me and you moved into some very poor neighborhood in the city of Detroit, didn't have anything, me and you would demand things from that neighborhood that the neighborhood would have to get. And not, not that the neighbor, like somebody in the neighborhood has to do it, but that some entrepreneur business person is going to note, hmm, you know, DeMarco and Joanne moved into this neighborhood. They got some money. I think they like coffee. I think they would like a grocery store that they could walk to. I think that they would want these things. And so they bring those things to us, but they're bringing them for us, not the people who were already there. And that's essentially what gentrification is. Now you say, why are these people moving into the neighborhood? I, that's a, a why question. But I mean, I can guess at some of it. So I would say some of them are, are young, young professionals or not even young professionals, college students, whatever. And they've traveled to, you know, Chicago or New York or some other city, and they've experienced what a dense urban neighborhood feels like, and they want that, but they can't get that in Utica. You know, it's, you got Garfield Road, Hall Road. There's just not a, there is no dense urban environment. They can't walk to the bar. They can't walk to the fitness studio place. They can't do those things. And so they can kind of do that stuff if they come to the city. The flip side is when they get to the city, You know, we're like, oh, well, you know, to rent this one bedroom out is going to be a thousand dollars. They got a thousand dollars. That's not a big deal to them. Like, oh, I'm going to get a one bedroom. That's a thousand dollars. Well, I might, you know, ask mom or dad to, you know, cut me some of the check and then I'm going (laughs) to balance the rest of it out. Or I'm at school, so I'm going to just take this big check out and then I'm going to just use that for my living expenses. So that's, I would say that's, that's probably a good chunk of it. I think that you do have people who, who do generally want to be here. I've met these people. I've talked to them. They live here. They are a part of your community. They're not, they have no intentions of leaving. You know, they're here. So I I think that it really depends. But you brought up like, oh, well, there's crime and education. You know, like, yeah, these are the common normal things that we hear um, from this group. And I don't think that is going to change. I don't think that this group of people are going to change. But you just got to remember, they don't have the same commitment that, you know, people who are from here, or black people who lived in these neighborhoods, right. who, whose families come from these neighborhoods, they don't have that same level of commitment to the city like you and me do. And so, you know, when you think of it from that perspective, like I'm not mad at them for coming and leaving because I don't expect them to. 
but this is our neighborhood. And so, you know, I, I think it's about balancing your expectations from them, but also building up your community enough to stand up to the wave, if you will. You know, like, you know, the wave is coming. So where's the block club and the community group that says, hey, welcome. Thank you for coming. I know that you're going to leave, but thank you for coming. This is who we are. This is what we're about. You're part of that or not, you know? And I think that that's a conversation that needs to happen. And it doesn't happen in enough neighborhoods um, where you have these like long-term residents who who really deeply care about the neighborhoods, minus the vacant lot or the burned down building. They love that neighborhood because I grew up here. My aunts and uncles lived on this block. I remember the fight I got into. And the last time I was telling you about a story where, you know, I bought a property and I was rehabbing it on a neighborhood, um, pretty rough neighborhood. Many houses, four or five houses were down on a, on a neighborhood, with like 15 houses. So that's a lot. And, you know, my brothers and, and I were working to rehab it, clean it out. And my brothers ran into a little bit of tension because they felt that the neighborhood was uh pressuring them, you know, like creating attention, watching them. Who are y'all and why are y'all coming to my neighborhood? And so I had to come in and talk with the kind of like the de facto neighborhood boss, if you will. And I talked to him and we had a conversation and then we realized like, yo, we're, we're in this for the same thing. And me and you share a lot of the same, you know, a lot of same commonalities. And so my brothers had no more attention as we, we move forward. And what I would say to there is, that was really good where people own their neighborhood. And so they are like, yeah, you might look like us, but what are you doing on this block? This is our block. And, you know, what are we doing? But also, I would have to say, this guy was working on a plan to buy up all of the houses in his neighborhood to rehab them and fix them. So there's an ownership that goes to that neighborhood. And when you have that, it's hard for somebody to come to your neighborhood and just disrespect it or push you around or you know, there's a community meeting, but I'm going to do all the talking. No, you're not. You sit down. This is our neighborhood. You are a right. guest. And I think when we start to take back that level of ownership of our communities, then you will not, you will not feel so displaced by somebody coming in because you know that they're just a guest and this is our neighborhood and we own this. And so I think that's the conversation. Yes, you made me realize that a lot of the issues that I had were really social. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, a whole issue of culture. I don't want you to change the culture mm -hmm. of my neighborhood because I like it. And uh, I think it was last week, Monday, you know, we have a, have a real nice group of folks that bike. Mm -hmm. And their bikes are all uh, fixed up with lights and they got good, good music. And usually there's only about maybe 20, 30 of them. Well, last week there's about maybe 50 or 60. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just standing out there looking at them because the music was, you know, good. And I was happy to see them because that means summer is here. And I looked at them closely and there were more of them. And a lot of them were white. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. Now that's what I'm talking about. You know that this is part of our culture. You're not telling us um to, you know, stop. I mean, you, we asked you to join us or you asked to come in mm -hmm. and now you've got something exactly. beautiful. But of course, that same group can't go over to the riverfront. Exactly. Because the riverfront people are a little bit different and 
Uh, they want to maintain their riverfront. Yeah. And they don't want no hood folks there. And that's and that's OK. I mean, I, I don't see that as a problem. Culture is so unique because it's in all of us and we all belong to the culture. And when we embrace that culture within ourselves, you don't get mad at another culture for doing something that you may not. Like, I'm a West Sider. You're an East Sider. You know what I mean? But I, I'm not sitting here saying like, oh, you, no, this is this is a cultural thing for the East Siders. This is a cultural thing for Black people. And it's OK for us to embrace that culture, because when we all embrace that culture, we don't allow it to get muddled in the water. You know, it's this is ours and we're a part of this. And this is what we this is what we're doing. And you can be a part of it or you cannot. But we're not going to change. And we've all committed to being a part of that. And I think, you know, that's what we like is when, you know, you come from somewhere else and you, mm-hmm. you want to join in as opposed to if you hear some noise, you're mm-hmm. calling up the cops. And, yeah. You know, just just making things ugly. Yeah. And ultimately that stuff doesn't work out. So when, when you have somebody who's not from the neighborhood, comes into the neighborhood, then starts making too many enemies, it, it don't typically it does, work out. Yeah, it does not. It does not work mm-hmm. out. Let's take this in a little different direction. What causes so many of our people to lose their homes? And what can we do or say to them or show them or to help them so that they won't? You lose your home because you don't pay taxes. So, I mean, it's not really much more to to say than that. So if you're not paying your property taxes, then you're going to lose your home. Now, the flip side is what people do is they don't treat the property tax is like a bill. So if say, for instance, that your property taxes is $1,200 a year, you know that it's $1,200 a year. It's no question to it being $1,200 a year. It's probably been $1,200 a year for a very long time. So from January to December, you know, at some point, you're going to have to cut a check for 1200 bucks. Now, what people do is they say, well, screw that. I'll pay it whenever. And that's the problem. So what they should be doing is saying, well, I know I have a $1,200 bill. There's 12 months in a year. So that's $100 a month. So I need to package up $100 a month, put in a savings account, whatever they need to do, or just pay it because you can make $100 payments. So just pay $100 a month. And at the end of the year, you won't have a $1,200 bill. But what we do is we wait the 12 months. Then in the 12th month, you have a $1,200 bill. I can tackle a $100 bill it's harder for me to tackle a $1,200 instant bill. You know, so now you're facing this $1,200 bill. Now, that's just the first year. You get three years to pay your taxes. The first year, you owe it. The second year, you're delinquent. The third year, you're facing foreclosure. Now, once that first year, so say 2022 taxes, you didn't pay those, then they go to the county. So now that they're in the county, the county adds interest to it. So you're $1,200 might shoot up to fifteen, sixteen hundred bucks because you ain't paying it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe some variation, but just know that it's going up. And then you do this for two or three years. So now you owe what you owe twelve hundred, now you might owe eighteen hundred or something. Now by the time it gets to foreclosure, it's like you gotta go get me that money today. So now if I couldn't afford to pay a hundred dollars a month, I couldn't afford to pay twelve hundred, I couldn't afford to pay sixteen hundred. Now I owe two grand and I got to pay that by March, you know? So then you, you found yourself in a situation and that's just that one year's taxes. You still owe taxes for the next year. So that's just the 22 taxes. You still 23 coming right after. 
So you owe 2000 but you still owe the 1200 you owe for 23 And then you owe the 1200 that you owe for 24 So you racking up a bill because you're not thinking long enough to say, I need to break this bill down over a 12-month period and treat it like my phone bill and just do it that way. So that's what ends up happening. And so these houses go into foreclosure and then you lose your home. Now there's a whole argument about over-assessed properties and things like that. And I hear all of that. But at the same time, you know, you can go down to the city and tell them that they've over-assessed your property. So if I was paying $1,222 and then I get a tax bill for $23 and it says $6,000, they screwed something up. I don't have to pay $6,000. I can go downtown Mm -hmm. and say, hey, listen, I don't know where you came up with this $6,000, but I need you to reassess my taxes. And there's a window to do it. So you say, reassess this because I was paying $1,200. Now you got it at $6,000. That's outrageous. I'm not paying that. You need to assess it and get it back in line. And then they'll do it a review. And then they'll kick it out and say, oh, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. Your taxes should be $1,230. And so now you're back on track. The other thing people will say is, well, I can't afford the taxes. I don't make enough money to afford the taxes. That's perfectly okay, too. You can go down to the city government. So go down to the Comenea Municipal Center. And they have forms that you can fill out. So if you are particular income levels, you can fill those forms out where they'll either reduce those taxes by half or they will waive them. So like if you're a senior citizen and stuff like that, and you make like no money, you don't need to pay, pro- like not that you don't need to pay property, but you can go down there and get exemptions that will remove these taxes. Or maybe this is your homestead property. Like this is the only house I own and I live in this home. That's a homestead property tax exemption. That's going to reduce your tax bill. It's people's responsibility to pay the tax bill. It, it doesn't matter what the assessed value is. Like you can argue all of these different things, but as a home owner, your responsibility to know I have to do what I need to do. I need to do this research. And sometimes it comes from a question where it says, I got a $6,000 tax bill and I don't know how I'm going to pay it. I'm going to call down to the city and ask them, can they help me? Everybody who works at the Comenea Young Municipal Center works for you. See, we, we have this um, very justifiable separation between us and the city government. The flip side is, that city government building is your building. You pay taxes, you pay the mayor, you pay the city council, you pay the public servant. That All of that's paid for through tax dollars. Those people down there work for you. And so you should always feel free 100% to go down there. And I've seen, I've seen people do it. I've seen older ladies who have no idea what they're doing come down. Well, I, I was on the ninth floor and I would see them come down to the, to the city council or, or city uh, coming in the young building and they would go floor to floor looking for answers. And they'd get rejected from every floor. <laughs> it's not a very customer service friendly place. But I've seen them go floor to floor until they finally end up on my floor. And then I came out and I'm like, what's going on? They're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do this, that, and the third. And they will. you can find somebody like me who will, let me take you down to four. And I'm going to use my badge and all this other stuff to walk you through this process. So you running into a problem with BC, let me go find the person I know in BC to help you do this. Now, they might ignore you, but they're not going to ignore me because I work there with them. But it's your responsibility to go to floor to floor. I've done that when I didn't work at the Comedy Young Building. I went floor to floor, ended up on an 11th floor in the mayor's office. Like, hey, uh, somebody needs to help me. Oh, no, you need to go down to the ninth floor. That's where you need to go. But 
I'm going to call down ahead and make sure that they know that somebody's coming. And so it's your responsibility as a citizen, as a homeowner, to research these things. It's hard. Any ways of saving money is going to be difficult, but it's your job to figure it out. And so when it comes to houses, you need to know the ins and outs of how to pay property taxes, when to pay property taxes, the games, the, the ways of paying it. Like, hey, maybe it was a rough year and you don't have $1,200, but you know you got two more years to get it done. So don't take the $1,200 and then throw it to the next year without a game plan on how you're going to pay back next year and the year after that. You know, come up with these game plans. Talk to people. We can't keep waiting until it gets to like the very end where you owe six grand and you're saying, well, somebody got to help me with my property taxes. That's too late. And I think that's the problem. And some people feel ashamed and they don't want to go to people. They don't want to go downtown and they don't want to ask their family. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that your family, even though some of them are fickle, mm -hmm. they can't help you. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I'm sick and, I, and I'm too embarrassed to ask for help because, you know, I, you know, oh, you know, it is what it is. And then I don't get help. Then I lose my eyesight. Whose fault is that? So you got to do what you need to do. If You know, that's the other thing. It's like, it's not about shame. It's not about any of that. It's about life happened and you got bills to pay. Well, what's the shame in being broke in a city that where a lot of people don't make money? And in this city, I think we've all had mm -hmm. opportunities of being broke, mm -hmm. of being laid off. Yep. I mean, I, being a teacher, I was laid off so many times that I have lost count. Mm -hmm. But I was fortunate enough that I had parents that I could say, look, I am laid off. Could you, uh, you know, give me a little uh, old me? There is somebody within your network, within three people that you know, there is somebody in your network who has an answer and you are too embarrassed or ashamed or whatever it is. Somebody in your circle has the answer to what you need and you just ain't asking questions because somebody was on the internet, somebody was watching TV, somebody pays attention to counsel, somebody was walking down the street and saw a flyer. And they have an answer or a direction in which you're supposed to move in, but you too ashamed to talk about it. That's on you. You can't be mad if your ego is too great for you to ask for help. Then you get whatever comes with that ego. Yes. I remember that you told me that your grandmother's house. Yeah, my grandma's house, it got it was caught up in probate and then <laughs> yeah, it so taxes wasn't paid, a number of different things happened, but so they were gonna sell my grandma's house and in order for us to stop that sale, we had to come up with 30 grand. Um, I don't know how we had to come up with 30 grand, but we did. And, you know, my mom was like, yo, I, I need 30 grand. I don't got it. I don't know anybody who's sitting on $30,000, but we need it. So she sent out the, the SOS in the family chat and everybody just, you know, and, and, and to know we don't all get along and we don't get along when it comes to money. But when she put the SOS out, most of us was like, well, I can put up a thousand or two thousand. Maybe I can go get this or maybe if I move this around and I can call this bank, they can do that. And we, we were able to come up with the 30,000. Your family is a very important asset that we as black people have, for some weird reason, have, have, have let go. And say, well, I don't really need them, but, but you need your family. And if it wasn't for my family coming together for a common purpose, uh, my grandma's house would be lost. Mm -hmm. And it would have been lost. Somebody from Farmington Hills would have bought it for cheap, would have put in twenty, thirty thousand, would have then sold it for eighty thousand on a house that we weren't even sure was worth thirty thousand. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So. Okay, let me ask you. With the new development, say I've lost my house. Okay. And I've got to rent now. Mm-hmm. What is the average rent of these new apartments? How much would I have to make on my job in order to rent in these new structures? So I don't think I can fully answer that question because I don't really know all the rents of all the properties coming in. What I can say is that the average rent in the city of Detroit is like seven to eight hundred bucks. That's across the city for all different types of, of rentals. That could be the single family house at Six Mile in Sherwood or whatever. It could be anywhere. But the average rent across the city is seven hundred. Now you're talking about the new developments. I really couldn't give you an answer. I mean, it could be a thousand, it could be two thousand. It it really depends on what the development is. If it's a luxury development, you're probably going to come out of pocket from fifteen to two thousand. That's probably a number. Your rent's going to fall in there, if not a little bit higher. It's a luxury development. It's not to the question of who are they building it for. Those luxury developments are made for people who can afford that rent. It's a market rate. That's who they're selling to. So if you make thirty-six thousand dollars a year, you probably ain't going to find a place in a uh, not without being rent burdened in a luxury apartment. So then there's like the workforce housing, which is like, now those target people who are making like 50000 to the market rate. They're going to be a little bit less than market rate. Now, is that what they call affordable housing? Um, Not necessarily. So there's different levels, right? So the luxury housing is like anything over the market. And then there's like market rate, which is like, if I can make two grand on it, I'm gonna make two grand. If it's if it's eighteen hundred, I'll make eighteen hundred. Market just says whatever I can get, I'm gonna get it. That's what I'm gonna do. So typically speaking, anything that's hundred twenty percent or greater is gonna be a, like luxury. Anything between eighty percent AMI, so a person making fifty thousand, and I I don't know what one twenty AMI is off the top of my head. So let's say that that's like ninety, right? So anybody in between. 50 and 90 are going to be targeted with the workforce housing. These are people who work like a decent job. They got benefits. They probably have some savings. They probably have money for a down payment, but they just, they don't want to do it. Um, they have a good job. You know, they're a teacher, or a firefighter, police officer, uh, engineer, stuff like that. So under 80. Now, with all the developments, we always hear about like affordable. What's affordable? So affordable is like less than 80. And 80 itself is considered affordable too. So when these developments are using federal dollars, not city of Detroit dollars, but federal dollars, CDBG, home, all of those kind of federal programs, the federal government says you have to build for 20% at 80% AMI, so 50,000. So if you got a hundred unit building, 20 of those units need to go to people who make 50,000 or less. Now, the other 80 can be whatever, but we need 20 of those to go to people who make 80% AMI. That's with federal dollars. Now, when we go less than 80%, now we're talking about affordable. Now, some people will say, well, 80% is not affordable. That may very well be true, but affordable in the general purposes for definitions, anything less than 80% is affordable. Now, from 60 to 80, about 60 to 80% AMI, it's going to be a person that's making from like uh, $36,000 to $50,000. So that's like 60 to 80. The average for the city is sitting at 36 to 40,000. So that's like 50%. And then it goes down from there. So 30% is like a low income and 20% is like extremely low income. 
So developers are not building developments to people who are, they're not typically building developments for people who go less than 50% AMI because the numbers don't work. So say I'm using $250. So what that means is they're saying for every square foot that I build on this house, I got to spend $250. So if I have a thousand square foot house, I got to spend $250,000 to build it. So if that's the conversation, then they're not going to sell that house. They, they're going to need to get that money back. So when I worked at the city, I would say, well, I need you to make some of these units. I'll give you some money, but I, I need some of those units to be affordable for somebody who can't necessarily afford it. So the developer says, hey, I can do that for you if you want. But just remember, it cost me $250,000 to build this house. You want me to sell it to somebody who can't pay me $250,000. So the only way for me to do it is to close that gap. So if you give me $50,000 or $60,000, then I can sell it to somebody who can afford a $200,000 house. But if you don't give me that, I can't do it because I got to get that money back. So those are the different affordabilities. Now, going just back to the general question, I think that the better question is, who is the developer targeting with their development? And I think that that will help you to better figure out what range the incomes will be. And there's different types of developers. There's luxury developers who you you have some of the biggest in your neighborhood. You know, this house, this penthouse suite, it's a million dollars. You know, like, mm-hmm. do can, can any of y'all afford it? Probably not, but I'm not selling to y'all. I'm selling to a person who can pay a million dollars. Then you got your workforce housing developer who's saying like, hey, listen, this unit is for somebody to make $50,000, $60,000. So, if, you know, if you like, you know, like a really nice countertop, you know, decent hardwood floors. We're going to sand them. We're going to seal them up real good. We're going to paint some cool stuff, but it ain't going to be luxury. You know, that's going to be be that build there. Under that, you have a mixture of developers who are like maybe workforce housing developers, but who are tapping into federal subsidies so that they can provide some deeper affordability, like 50% or 60%. So Parker Duran, which is at Van Dyke and Kirchhoff, that's a workforce developer who tapped into government dollars to be able to afford 60 and 50% AMI units. So housing for people who are making, you know, 30, 40,000, 50,000, because these are people who would normally not be moving into a brand new um, development. So they're tapping into those money. And then there's affordable developers where these are developers who typically target under 60% AMI, not many market rate units, Um, I will go low. I will go to 30% or 40%, but my capital stack is pulling in all kinds of dollars from every source that's out there. So, you know, I'm going to pull a little bit of money from the MEDC. I'm going to pull some some abatements from the DGC. I'm going to take some money from HRD. I'm going to go, you know, if there's some other federal funds, I'm going to use those and I'm going to package it into a deal. I'm going to go to Michigan and get some more money. I'm going to package all of this stuff together so that I can get the development done. And now this is going to have affordability of like 15 years. You know, it's going to have like a really long affordability phase in there. And the developer is not walking away with rents. The developer is going to walk away with their developer fee and then they're, they're done. So that's our new projects. Your new projects right now, um, just thinking about the neighborhood, you got uh, workforce developments with affordable housing. You have a lot of luxury. Yeah, I don't want to say a lot. You got some luxury developments. So that's kind of what's targeted in this neighborhood. I would say that's that. And then you have some affordable deals that's taking place, but those deals are more like 
preservation deals and rehabilitation deals. So they're not new developments where you're going to see something built from the ground, but more so like we took this old apartment building and we renovated it and we put in some nice stuff, pulled out the carpet, sanded the floors, and the price stays kind of low because we didn't go in and put in a brand new white click vinyl. You know, we didn't do all of that. So the days of the projects, those days are kind of over with. Yeah. The city is not keen on rebuilding projects and stuff like that. You've seen it across the city. You've seen um, tons of these developments be knocked down. So the Brewster projects where my grandma came from is not there. And that was a perfectly good building. They could have renovated that and did all kinds of stuff with that. Like they did the Douglas projects, which is now a senior housing project. Um, Cabrini Green, that's in Chicago. So no, the city is not in the business of creating public housing the way that that you would have once known it. But all of the science and stuff kind of says that that wasn't really the best way of, right. of housing people anyway. It's not good business to concentrate. You know, crime comes from poverty. Like, that's just what it is because you're looking for an opportunity to get out, right? So crime is really opportunistic activities that sometimes is not, you know, condoned by a major society. And so when you think of it in that perspective, when you take people who are in poverty and you put them together, you're creating a situation that just don't benefit nobody. And so they don't want to do that. So the reality is, I think um, until the best thing comes along, it's going to be, you know, buying units and affordable buildings and then getting the people in that way. So what it comes down to, like in a lot of countries, either you have it or that you don't. I mean, you gotta, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we live in a capitalist society. So, I mean, it is what it is. We all have to get money. The real problem facing our city is just really honing in on Detroit. The real problem facing Detroit is that people just don't have enough money. That's the real issue. People are just not making enough money. You can't live on $30,000 a year. You it's can't. just, it's just not realistic. If your, if your rent is, you know, $1,000, I mean, that's you, you've you already wiped out $12,000 of 30, so you only got 20 left to do all of your other stuff for the rest of the year. So we really need money, and people need to become savvy in saving their money, combining their monies with other people, and putting stuff together so that they can come up with these deals that work. You talk about Big Mama's house and all these other things. Big Mama housed seven people in that house. You know, think of the cost savings on that. You know, I don't, I don't got to go rent. I can stay in my grandma's basement and I'm going to stay here and save that two or 300. But what are you doing with that two or $300 that you should be giving her that you ain't because she's letting you stay there? Where are you putting that money at? Are you saving it or are you spending it? You know, what are you doing? How are you bringing in more money? These are the conversations that are really destroying our community because we won't have them with each other. We want everybody to mind their business and stay out of your stuff. Well, then this is the stuff that we deal with. But now, you know, like you said earlier in the, on this uh, podcast, there's somebody right there waiting to take that dollar from you. You, you oh, I'm, I'm hungry. I didn't save any money. I'm not, I don't have a grocery budget, so I'm going to take my dollar and go buy a honey bun from the gas station. Well, that guy takes that dollar from you every day. He takes that dollar, so that's $365 he done took from you every day. And you don't buy one honey bun, you buy two. So he just made $700. He take that, he go home. He pay his mortgage. You know, and you wow. and you're less. Yeah, wow. you're, you're less from that. Like, and then when you break it down like that, yes, yeah, it's, it's just the numbers. You, you like people need to start thinking about it, and they need to think in a very 
long view about things. They they don't. We think Black people, we are in survival mode and we relish being in survival mode. Our music talks about being in survival mode. If this happened to me, then I'm going, you know, explode and do this, that, and a third because I'm in survival mode. But survival mode is for survival. It's for when things, when your back is against the wall, you got to respond to get yourself into a better situation. But we're all in that better situation. We're there now. You can do what you want. You could go to school. You cannot go to school. And not to say that, like, life is perfect and things are great. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that, like, there's not real, like, money costs that stop people from doing things. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that there is no need to be in survival mode. When you're in survival mode, you become a, a victim, you know? The slaves were victims and they were in survival mode. But what is a 21st century Black man, what is he surviving? Like, oh, I'm surviving the neighborhood. Well, we can fix that. You, you don't have to survive the neighborhood. These are the people that you need to help you move on to the next thing. Are we helping each other move forward or are we not? I just had like a, a deep conversation with one of my cousins earlier today about this. You know, man, I'm just, my life is just, you know, it's just, well, how do we get out of that? You know, it's, it's up to you. We have to let this victim mode stuff go because we see it play out in so much of our, of our existence in this society. Black people do very good when we band together. That's our superpower. That's, right. That's our superpower is banding together. We we will do that. Like the survival instincts kick in when we need them to kick in. But what we need to be kicking in right now is our thrival mode. That's what we need to do. Where are the people out here that's making some money? And how do I get my money into their hands? Because I need a retirement and I know that they got a game plan. So let me get him my thousand dollars and see if he can turn it into something and yeah he might give me back a hundred bucks but that's ten percent and that's good money you know Mm -hmm. but we don't talk like that with each other we don't we don't look at each other that way and all of our counterparts and other cultures they do do that they do that every day they work with each other every day they're not penny pinching and watching what the next person is going through they're saying how can i help how can we get on the same page and make this thing happen you know I need a roof and you need brickwork. Let's, you know what I mean? Let's, let's barter. And this is very much so our culture and this is who we are. But we got to, if, if we plan to exist as a culture, we better step it up because our days are pretty much numbered. They are. Thank you. <laughs> you have uh, given us a lot of information and definitely something to think about. Now for my two cents. Many of these houses were once owned for years by the working class. They came up from the South knowing that home ownership and land was important. It was something that was valued. Many of us come from sharecroppers or mill workers. When we came North, some lived with family members until they could buy their own home. Many working at the plant and then going to their second job, and even some to a third job. It was understood that the family would stay in that house and pass it down. Don't give up the fight. Find programs that will help you save or maintain your home, such as the city, the state, the feds, and nonprofits. But most of all, Remember how our ancestors made it through those hard times when you think all is lost. You 
are a Detroiter. That's just my two cents. This is Detroit Joe signing off. Whatever you do, walk in love and peace.